birthday today to Francis D. Good of Blakesburg, to Carolyn Osborne of Newton, Sandra Feldman of Pleasantville, and to Conroy and Libera Spates of Des Moines. Well, happy birthday to all you folks. You are joined today in your birthday with director Catherine Bigelow, who turned not 72, and Bill Nye, the science guy, turned 68 today. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And we have a lot of obituaries today, and here is Mary Frances to get us started on them. We're going to do mostly summaries. We have a lot of lengthy ones, but in order to make sure you get uh, information on names and dates, we're going to summarize. First is uh, Janet L. Hanusa, age 90, of Des Moines. She passed away Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd. Complications resulting from a fall in Lewy body dementia, from which she suffered since 2016. Visitation, Westover Funeral Home, Wednesday, November 29, from 5 to 7. Celebration of Life, Thursday, November 30, at Windsor Heights Lutheran Church. Uh, that'll take place at 11 a.m., and there will be a visitation one hour before the service for Janet Alphanusa. Calvin G. Campbell, age 76, West Des Moines, passed away Monday, November 20th, at his residence surrounded by family. Um, this one is of note, Campbell's concessions. Um, he trampled the country with his signature corn dog stands before he opened up several Campbell's restaurants around the Des Moines area. He bought and remodeled the depot at the Iowa State Fair, and he was especially he especially enjoyed hosting annual East High School class reunions on the East Side night during the fair. Um, his celebration of life will be Saturday, December 16, at the 4-H building at the Iowa State Fairgrounds from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, private family burial will take place at a later date. Uh, Martin, Marty, Paul, Zylstra, that's Z-Y-L-S-T-R-A, age 79, passed away November 19 at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. Um, his celebration uh, Friday, December 1 at Hamilton's Southtown Funeral Home. Friday, December 1 from 5 to 7. A funeral service will be Saturday, December 2 at the Fort Des Moines United Methodist Church in Des Moines. And that funeral service will take place at 11. And I'll do this last one on this page. It's very lengthy, but um, as I mentioned, we're, we have so many. This is Dr. Larry William Getz. That's G-O-E-T-Z. A beloved family physician, devoted husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Passed away peacefully at his home November 16 after a long battle with Parkinson's and pancreatic insufficiency. A celebration of life will take place Sunday, December 3rd at Plymouth United Church of Christ, and that starts at 3 p.m. Family will receive friends one hour prior to the service, so at 2 p.m., 
Plymouth United Church of Christ family can be there or will be there. Um, and family invites all who knew and loved him to join them in remembering a man who touched so many lives with his kindness and dedication. You want me to go ahead and read the uh, follow the? Oh, I think that wrapped it up for us, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to return now to the. Oh, we have more. Ah. Excuse me for being so disorganized here. We've got another whole page of obituaries. Let me read a couple, then I'll send it back to Mary Frances. Glennis Mackinich of Norwalk, 84, passed away peacefully at home on November 20th. According to her wishes, no services are planned. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions are suggested to Unity Point Hospice. You can also leave on online condolences at the Isles Care website. And Carol Ann Tetmeyer has passed away on Monday, November 20th. She was surrounded by her family and listening to Nutcracker music. I believe that we've already read uh, Carol Ann's uh, obituary on an earlier date, so I'm going to just go ahead and repeat the massive Christian burial, which was heralded on Friday, November 24th. Uh, at 2023. And again, condolences may be expressed at the Hamilton Funeral Home. Patricia Weisenbach-Selsey, who was 93, passed away peacefully on November 23rd at Wesley on Grand in Des Moines. A massive Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, November 30th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in West Des Moines. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. prior to the service and interment will be at Glendale Cemetery. So Mary Frances, do you want to finish up our obituaries for us? Okay, Patricia J. weisenbach Selsey. Patricia J. Weisenbach Selsey, age 93, passed away peacefully Thursday, November 23, at Wesleyan Grand in Des Moines. So, massive Christian burial, Thursday, uh, Sacred Heart Catholic Church at 11 a.m. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. prior to the service. Internment, Glendale Cemetery. Ankeny, Donald Paul Benson. Um, does not give any background, but it says a celebration of life will be held November 27. Uh, American Legion and Van Meter. It'll take place from noon to 1.30. And then a military military service will uh, happen at 2 p.m. at the Veterans Cemetery near Van Meter. Philip Lee Murray of Des Moines, age 89, uh, passed away unexpectedly November 16 at the Iowa Veterans Home in Marshalltown. Um, immediate cremation, no service. You can read the full obituary. You can hear it at hamiltons-funeralhome.com. Christine Fromm, that's F-R-A-H-M, passed away November 18, surrounded by her loved ones. It does not give an age. Celebration of Life. Saturday, December 2, um, at Memorial Services of Iowa, which is located in Ankeny, and that'll take place at 11 a.m. Joan or Joanne Cole. Joanne Cole, age 78, of Huxley, earned her angel wings November 18th. Um, celebration of Life, Saturday, December 2nd, Grace Evangelical Free Church in Huxley, 
Uh, visitation there will be 2 to 4. Services at 4.30. Um, John Hoyam. And I worked with his son at KCCI for many years. And boy, does he look like his dad. John W. Hoyam, age 87. Des Moines, passed away Thursday, November 23. Uh, cremation rites have been accorded. And there is no uh, service listing here. And Rebecca Smith. Um, Rebecca died Thursday, November 16, at Panora Specialty Care. Graveside service, Tuesday, November 28, Glendale Cemetery. It'll start at 11 a.m. Um, celebration of Life will follow at the Felix and Oscars on Merle Hay Road. It says, all are welcome. So now we'll return to the stories in the front page section of the register. This from the Detroit Free Press, which is part of the USA Today Network and Dateline Detroit. Messages between you and your doctor could cost you. <clears throat> Are you thinking about asking your doctor a question through your online patient portal? At the University of Michigan Health and a growing number of hospitals across the United States, it could cost you. UM John Hopkins Medicine, the Mayo Clinic, Vanderbilt Health, and the Cleveland Clinic are among the health systems nationally now billing patients for what Vanderbilt calls asynchronous e-visits. That's a quote, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what asynchronous means, but that's quoting them. E-visits, of course, are online visits. The charge is triggered when electronic patient portal messages require a clinician to spend more than five minutes to respond and if the reply is sent within seven days. UM did not, that is the University of Michigan Health, did not detail how much patients are asked to pay out of pocket for the service, saying only that the fees vary. For people with insurance, it can be the same as an on-visit copay. Other health systems say the consultations can be free for Medicaid patients or can carry out-of-pocket costs of less than $20, though patients with high deductible plans could pay as much as $50 per message. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expanded telemedicine billing options in January of 2020, just as the coronavirus pandemic took hold. Those billing codes allowed doctors and other qualified health providers to begin charging patients for time they spend interacting via electronic messaging. Mary Mason, a spokesperson for Michigan Medicine, the academic medical center of the University of Michigan, said UM Health began charging patients for some portal message responses in January 2020, as soon as the expanded CMS billing codes were approved. Most commercial and government health plans now recognize these services as a covered benefit, she said. Out-of-pocket expenses for patients vary depending on their health plan much like they do for office visits, she added. Patients are notified before they send a message in the online portal that they could be billed for it, Mason said. To ensure that patients know there may be a charge associated with the service, they receive a portal message informing them prior to sending the message to their care team, she said. They must click a box indicating they understand the possibility of a charge before they are able to proceed. Although some messages are subject to billing at UM, Mason said, the vast majority of my UM Health patients' portal interactions are free. 
Corwell Health, the state's largest health system, again, we're talking about the state of Michigan. Corwell Health, the state's largest health system, provides patients with free correspondence through my chart because, according to them, we want to make sure it's as easy as possible to communicate with doctors and other medical staff, said Corwell's chief operating officer, Dr. Daryl Emochi. Emochi acknowledged, however, that it has become increasingly challenging to manage the volume of electronic messaging at Corwell's patients sent through the MyChart portal, and it continues to swell. The number of messages has tripled since the pandemic began. COVID just caused it to explode, Emochi said. It definitely is a big convenience for individual patients to send a message to their doctor just asking a question, and it becomes an increasing amount of work for doctors and nurses and other folks on the care team to try to respond to those in a timely manner. That's why I think you see a number of institutions across the country going to this. They realize that their most well-trained, most expensive, and most important physicians across the organization are doing work that's not getting compensated. That's not fair to the doctors and that becomes long-term, not sustainable, he added. Henry Ford Health provided data that illustrates the enormous rise in MyChart messages from patients seeking electronic medical advice from doctors. In 2019, before the start of the pandemic, Henry Ford Health said it received 286,302 electronic portal messages from patients seeking medical advice. That number nearly quadrupled in 2020 to just over 1 million requests. By 2022, Henry Ford physicians received 1.58 million messages from patients, more than 5.5 times the pre-pandemic rate. In a post on its website, Vanderbilt said the volume of messages from patients seeking medical advice online has risen to 2.3 million per year, and that is what drove its decision to start billing for electronic messages. It was either charge for it or stop offering it, they said. Centers across the country, like Vanderbilt Health, that manage complex health issues are now charging patients for e-visits in order to continue this valuable service to patients, they said. There are some concerns, however, that when hospitals charge patients for electronic messages, it could exacerbate inequities in health care, especially for poor people. A research letter published in January in the JMA News Network suggested people are less likely to send electronic messages to medical providers when they know they could be billed for it. That means they might put off or avoid seeking medical help when symptoms arise, even if they might be serious, to say money. A Kaiser Family Foundation survey of American adults found that 41% have unpaid debt from medical or dental bills. Most of those who had medical debt said they had to make sacrifices to pay them off, and 40% said they had to drain their savings account or the savings of a relative to pay them. Additionally, the survey found one in seven Americans with health care debt were turned away by medical providers because they had outstanding bills. Those with health care debt also were more likely to say they have avoid getting needed treatment because of the cost. El Mucci said Corwell is working to find other solutions to manage the glut of electronic messages without charging patients or overburdening physicians and causing burnout.
Already, artificial intelligence software is helping to automate prescription refill requests at Corwell, he said. The hope is that AI could also screen notes to physicians and rank them in order of urgency, help with transcriptions and other tasks that take up big chunks of physicians' time. I really firmly believe that over the next five to ten years, artificial intelligence and voice actuation, excuse me, let me start that again. I firmly believe that over the next five years to ten years, artificial intelligence and voice actuation tools and other things will hopefully make it a whole lot easier for us to practice, El Muchi said. And I want to reiterate that this story comes out of Michigan, and the is the situations it was referring to are specific to the Michigan institutions named in the article. So if you're looking for your own uh, information about whether or not your provider charges for online uh, uh, consultation, then you do need to check with your own provider. Mary Frances? And I'm going to do one fifty stater here before I jump over to Nation and World. Um, And now I can't find it. Uh, Idaho officials have said that several Ada County residents have tested positive for MPOX this month. And one case was detected in Canyon County, Idaho. So, because we're full service, what is MPOX? It's monkeypox. They've just renamed it. There, now you know something. I bet you didn't even know you didn't know. Um, Ukraine aid tangled with border policy. Democrats reject GOP's demands on asylum, comma, wall. And it shows a photo of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, and he's flanked by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This is from Lisa Mascaro of the Associated Press. As war and winter collide, a top advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky acknowledged during a recent visit to Washington that the days ahead will be tough as his country battles Russia while U.S. support from Congress hangs in the balance. President Joe Biden's nearly $106 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other needs sits idle in Congress, neither approved nor rejected, but subjected to political new political demands from Republicans who are insisting on the U.S.-Mexico border policy changes to halt the flow of immigrants. Linking Ukraine's military assistance to U.S. border security interjects one of the most divisive domestic political issues, immigration and border crossings, into the middle of an intensifying debate over wartime foreign policy. When Congress returns this week from its holiday break, Biden's request will be a top item on the to-do list, and the stakes could not be higher. Failure risks delaying U.S. military aid to Kiev and Israel, along with humanitarian assistance for Gaza, in the midst of two wars, potentially undermining America's global standing. Quote, it's coming at a critical time, uh, said Luke Coffey, who is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, which recently hosted Andrei Yermak, the Ukrainian president's chief of staff, at a discussion in Washington. We're running out of money, he said in an interview. 
What just a year ago was overwhelming support for Ukraine's young democracy is it reaches for an alliance with the West to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion has devolved into another partisan fight in the United States. Members of Congress overwhelmingly support Ukraine, embracing Zelensky as they did when he arrived on a surprise visit last December to a hero's welcome. But the continued delivery of U.S. military and government aid is losing favor with the hard right wing of Republican lawmakers and with some Americans. Nearly half of the U.S. public thinks the country is spending too much on aid to Ukraine, according to polling from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Rather than approve Biden's request, which includes $61 million, or excuse me, billion dollars for Ukraine, Republicans are demanding something in return. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky has said the best way to ensure GOP support for Ukraine is for Biden and Democrats to accept border policy changes that would limit the flow of migrants across the border with Mexico. To that end, a core group of senators, Republicans and Democrats, has been meeting privately to come up with a border policy solution that both parties could support unlocking GOP votes for the Ukraine aid. On the table are asylum law changes pushed by the Republicans that would make it more difficult for migrants to enter the United States, even if they claim they're in danger, and reduce their release on parole while awaiting judicial proceedings. Republicans <coughs> excuse me, also want to resume construction of the border wall. Democrats call these essentially non-starters, and the border security talks are going slowly. Those who have worked on immigration-related issues for years see a political disaster in the making for all sides, Ukraine included. Quote, I think it's terrible that we're in the position we're in, said Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, a Democrat. Quote, but you know, we were all talking, or we were talking all through the night and talking all day today, he said recently, trying to find a path forward. He added, I'm not confident that we'll get there. Republicans, even defense hawks who strongly back Ukraine, insist the money must come with U.S. border provisions. Quote, the reality is, if President Biden wants Ukraine aid to pass, we're going to have to have substantial border policy changes, said uh, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican of Arkansas, who is often a McConnell ally on defense issues. The White House has requested roughly $14 billion for border security in its broader package, with money for more Border Patrol officers, detention facilities, and judges to process immigration cases. It also includes stepped-up inspections to stop the flow of deadly fentanyl. Biden and his national security team met recently with key senators of both parties. With Congress narrowly split, Republicans holding slim majority control of the House <clears throat> and Democrats a close edge in the Senate, bipartisan agreement will almost certainly be required for any legislation to advance. Pentagon funding for Ukraine is rapidly dwindling. The Defense Department has the authority to take about $5 billion worth of equipment from its stockpiles to send to Ukraine, but it only has about $1 billion to replenish that those stocks. So military leaders are worried about the effect on U.S. troop residents, or re readiness rather, and equipping. 
the need for an infusion of funding is growing, quote, by the day, said Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh. Overall, half the $113 billion that Congress has approved for Ukraine since the war began in February 22, has gone to the Defense Department, according to Congressional Research Service. The dollars are being spent to build Ukraine's armed forces, largely by providing U.S. military weapons and equipment and replenish U.S. stockpiles. Much of the rest goes to emergency and humanitarian aid and to support the government of Ukraine through the World Bank. And we'll wrap up this uh portion of the Des Moines Register reading with more around from the, the USA Today's roundup of short items from 50 states. Let's look at Illinois. This is from the capital Springfield. Kaya Gravin, who recently announced she was stepping down as executive director of downtown Springfield, Inc., <clears throat> could be headed for City Hall. The city's Office of Planning and Economic Development head, Val Yazel, confirmed that Gravin and her office were in conversations about the job. And from Indiana, Salem, a Louisiana woman was sentenced to 25 years in prison for her involvement in the death of a five-year-old Atlanta boy whose body was found last year in a suitcase in rural southern Indiana. And from Iowa... This is uh, Dateline Des Moines. Data released from the American College Testing Service shows fewer high school seniors are ready for college as ACT scores are declining. From Topeka, Kansas, the Kansas Highway Patrol must stop using a tactic known as the Kansas Two-Step to detain out-of-state drivers long enough to find a reason to search their vehicles for illegal drugs, a federal judge has ruled. From Michigan, White Lake Township, explosions at a petroleum refinery outside Detroit caused a fire and led to the evacuation of some nearby residents, authorities said. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, an attorney for Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer convicted of murdering George Floyd, said Chauvin's family has been kept in the dark by federal prison officials after he was stabbed while in prison. From Meridian, Mississippi, a Mississippi sheriff's deputy was shot and wounded during an exchange of gunfire with a man who was suspected of killing another person hours earlier, according to the State Department of Public Safety. From Ferguson, Missouri, a driver in suburban St. Louis was killed in a crash caused by another driver fleeing from police, authorities said. The accident happened amid growing concern in the St. Louis region about the dangers of police pursuits, and it followed a national report in September that urged caution in such pursuits. From Omaha, Nebraska, the second story from a town named Omaha in our 50-state roundup. A father has been arrested in the Thanksgiving Day shooting of his 10-year-old son. From Bismarck, North Dakota, the Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota is defending itself from claims of political bias after an unofficial message cautioning airmen to not attend a conservative political rally began circulating on social media. And from South Dakota, Sioux Falls, a Minnehaha County man indicted on first-degree manslaughter and attempted murder charges was sentenced to life in prison. 
And that wraps up the uh, roundup from the states immediately surrounding us. Let's return to the 50 states section. From Wilmington, Delaware, the far end of the fishing pier at Cape Henelopen State Park is closed until further notice, the Department of National Resources and Environmental Control has announced. The closure of the last 145 feet of the 1,300-foot-long pier is part of an ongoing structural analysis, the department said. And out of the Washington, D.C. District of Columbia, police were passing out auto-tracking devices to try to stem a sharp increase in carjackings, auto thefts, and other crimes in the nation's capital. The initiative is part of a multi-pronged anti-crime offensive launched by the Metropolitan Police Department and Mayor Muriel Bowser's government. Violent crimes, particularly homicide and car theft, have risen sharply, and the deputy mayor for public safety, Lindsay Apaya, flatly stated before the House Judiciary Committee last month that the city is in the midst of a crime crisis. From Inverness, Florida, a 75-year-old man suspected of the dismembering death of a man at a home in North Florida has died, according to sheriff's officials. From Pendergast, Georgia, a Toyota-linked maker of auto parts will build a third factory northeast of Atlanta to build electrical converters for hybrid vehicles. Toyota Industries Electrical Systems North America said it will invest $69 million to build the plant in Pendergast with plans to hire more than 250 new employees. From Kenihe, Hawaii, the flight data recorder of a large U.S. Navy plane that overshot a runway and ended up in the water near Honolulu last week has been recovered as the military continues to plan for the aircraft's removal. The Navy's Aircraft Mishap Board is investigating on scene at Marine Corps Base Hawaii in Kanahi Bay, trying to determine the cause of the accident and any contributing factors, according to the Navy. From Livingston, Kentucky, Kentucky officials and crews with rail operator CSX were working Friday to remove train cars and spilled material at the site of a derailment that sparked a chemical fire earlier in the week and prompted home evaluations in a small town nearby. State officials said they were monitoring the air for traces of hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide, but there had been no detection of those substances at the derailment site or the nearby towns of Livingston since Thursday. And that wraps up this shift for the last 90 minutes. Your readers have been me, Twyla Glenn, and our fearless leader herself, Mary Frances Evans. It was a pleasure to have you at the microphone today, Mary Frances. It has been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today with Carol. Thank you, Jeff. Jonathan Turley is the writer of this first opinion. Students have a right to back Palestinians. The issuance of a deactivation order last month in Florida sounded like it involved a routine decision by the utility to cut off service because of an overdue bill. In reality, it involved the deactivation of the free speech rights of a controversial group, and the bill might prove prohibitively expensive for many. The order in question was issued by Raymond Rodriguez, the chancellor of Florida's university system, to the University of Florida chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine. The SJP has been under fire for its statements in support of Palestinians after Hamas's October 7th massacre in Israel. I have previously written that Hamas is factually, legally, and morally a terrorist organization. However, the banning of the student group in Florida represents a clear denial of free speech rights under the First Amendment. Rodriguez has indicated that he made the decision, quote, in consultation with Governor Ron DeSantis, unquote, due to the SJP national body voicing support for the Palestinian resistance and rationalizing the October 7th attack as the result of Israel's apartheid, ethnic cleansing, indiscriminate bombing, and other provocations. That advocacy is being used to suggest that the group is guilty of a felony under Florida law to knowingly provide material aid or resources to a designated foreign terrorist organization. Political advocacy for Palestinians isn't a crime. However, no such charge has been filed. Indeed, no charge could be sustained on this basis. Political advocacy is not a crime in this country and cannot alone constitute material support. The SJP's anti-Israel language and its support for Palestinians fall squarely with protected speech under the First Amendment. The emphasis remains on the word material, not political support under these laws, and has not yet been shown in Florida. Under such cases as Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project, the Supreme Court has emphasized that criminal material support of terrorist groups cannot criminalize simple advocacy. Rather, it requires advocacy performed in coordination with or at the direction of a foreign terrorist organization. The court also has stressed in other cases that the First Amendment protects the rights of students to associate and advocate on campuses on issues of public concern. Our universities must remain places where students feel safe to voice their viewpoints and threatening or violent acts, including tearing down flyers about hostages, cannot be tolerated. Campuses almost must remain places where diverse viewpoints can be expressed. Free speech remains a critical guarantee for higher education. Other schools, such as Brandeis University, have banned SJP, and my own university, George Washington, issued a temporary suspension. 
Those, however, are private universities. They can face lawsuits over violating their own free speech principles, but Florida is a state actor barred directly under the First Amendment from such content discrimination. We have seen students and professors accused of inflammatory rhetoric against Hamas subjected to suspension or forced to teach remotely. It is a cycle that has repeated itself with regularity throughout our history. In my new book, The Indispensable Right, Free Speech in an Age of Rage, I explore periods of panic politics and how inevitably the first victim is free speech. The same pattern appears to be happening now in Florida. Silencing opposition views is never an effective way of combating ideology. A Quinnipiac University poll found that among Democratic voters, 41% said their sympathies lie with the Palestinians, while 34% said they were more sympathetic to the Israelis. The percentage of Americans who support Palestinians is smaller, but growing. Responding with censorship will only further fuel the rage while undermining free speech for all. There is an alternative. Universities can enforce policies barring threats and violence while allowing good speech to counter bad speech. The alternative is to succumb to the monster of sedition and speech crimes. In every prior period, the fear and anger were genuine and often understandable. However, they resulted in the abuse of minority groups and dissenting views in society, from communist to feminist to civil rights advocates. We have seen censorship and cancel campaigns also directed at Jewish groups, including the disgraceful destruction of Hamas hostage flyers by lawyers and professors. We have seen school publications push back on pro-Israeli writers, and we have seen rising anti-Semitism, abuse, and violent rhetoric directed at Jewish students. None of that can be tolerated on campuses. Florida is likely to lose the fight over its deactivation order because it is attempting to deactivate the exercise of free speech. That is the very right that defines us as a nation. Universities have been complicit in rising intolerance. It is also a right that has been in a free fall on college campuses in this era of cancel campaigns. Conservatives have rightly denounced such campaigns, which largely target conservative, libertarian, and contrarian speakers. Indeed, universities have been complicit in rising orthodoxy and intolerance on our campuses, including the dramatic reduction of conservative and libertarian faculty. DeSantis should reconsider the implications of this action. The First Amendment was not created to protect only popular speech. It was a truly revolutionary statement that we would protect all views, including those we may find wrong or offensive. It is a protection of the least popular among us. It is a covenant among citizens that we will fight for one another's right to speak regardless of our disagreement with the underlying views. Whatever the cost that SJP's speech might have for schools, it pales in comparison with the cost of censorship. 
That is a bill that must be paid by every citizen when we try to silence the few for the satisfaction of the many. And about the author, Jonathan Turley is the Shapiro Professor of Public Interest Law at George Washington University. And now we go back to Jeff. Sneaky Santa wraps your taxes up to pay student debt. This opinion piece by Ingrid Jacques, who is a columnist at USA Today. With Thanksgiving behind us, we've officially entered the Christmas season. It's a time of year when many of us feel magnanimous. Tis the season for giving, after all. President Joe Biden is certainly getting in the holiday spirit. <clears throat> He's feeling very generous with your money. After the U.S. Supreme Court in June struck down his unilateral attempt to forgive at least $400 billion in student loans, Biden has diligently sought ways to work around this serious reprimand. The president has landed on at least one option that is more costly than his original plan and will be more difficult to challenge legally. The millions of Americans who have already paid off their loans or have opted to forego college altogether may find this development irksome. Payments restarted this fall. Biden has already done enough damage with his failed loan cancellation plan and other meddling. This fall, borrowers finally had to start repaying student loans with interest for the first time since the Trump administration paused payments because of the COVID-19. That pause alone cost taxpayers more than $200 billion. The Biden administration kept extending the pandemic payment pause to the point that many borrowers now face confusion about how much they owe and why they even have to pay back loans. Well, it doesn't help that Democrats like U.S. Representative Ro Khanna of California are making idiotic comments about how any confusion over the restart of payments should translate into canceling student debt for everyone up to $50,000 immediately. Since his magic wand approach to debt cancellation fizzled, Biden has a plan B. He's desperate to offer some sort of major loan forgiveness ahead of the next presidential election. Biden's Sneaky New Scheme NPR dubbed this the sneaky other student loan forgiveness plan that is still alive and will affect millions of Americans. At the president's direction, the Education Department took to the rulemaking process to beef up its income-driven repayment plans, which have existed in more limited form for decades. The new regulations took effect this summer, and 5.5 million borrowers have already applied for the program. The department claims it has the authority to expand income-driven repayment under the Higher Education Act. It's highly doubtful, however, that Congress ever intended to give the Biden administration blanket authority to create a brand new entitlement program. That's what this is. And unlike the one-time debt forgiveness Biden attempted before, this plan is permanent. The so-called Saving on a Valuable Education, or SAVE, -E, save, 
program broadens caps on monthly payments based on income and family size and also offers interest subsidies. Many borrowers won't have to pay anything each month. Others will qualify for loan forgiveness on remaining balances much more quickly. The White House has called its program the most affordable student repayment plan ever. But affordable for whom? These debts don't magically disappear. While individual borrowers may feel relief, it's taxpayers who are ultimately left covering the cost. And this new de facto forgiveness plan will add to our ever-growing national debt, which the country can't afford. According to the Penn-Wharton budget model, Biden's SAVE plan will cost $475 billion over 10 years. Other estimates are even higher. The House Committee on Education and the Workforce has stated it could cost as much as $559 billion, which would make it the costliest regulation in U.S. history. Nat Malkus, Deputy Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, observed in the Wall Street Journal that these changes take income-driven repayment plans from a safety net for a few to a hybrid loan grant system that Congress never intended to create. Malkus also points to the unintended consequences that are likely from colleges raising tuition to students taking on even more debt and thus further burdening taxpayers. Any kind of widespread loan forgiveness serves as a mask to the underlying reasons higher education is so costly to begin with. It's also going to make the problem worse. But what can be done about it? Republicans in Congress have tried to counter Biden's overreach through the Congressional Review Act, which allows lawmakers to block the administration from from enforcing a regulation. Utter disregard for the Constitution. This month, the Democratic-controlled Senate narrowly blocked the measure from reaching Biden's desk, which he said he would have vetoed anyway. Two think tanks, the Michigan-based Mackinac Center for Public Policy and the Cato Institute, have challenged the Biden administration's loan forgiveness for more than 800,000 borrowers who had participated in income-driven repayment plans. The groups cite Biden's utter disregard for federal law and the Constitution. That case is before the 6th U.S. District Court of Appeals. Biden's backdoor loan forgiveness ploy could prove more difficult to quash, even if the administration's action seems just as unconstitutional as before, because someone has to show harm to have a standing in a lawsuit. As Calum Kruckenberg, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, told me, quote, this is just as illegal, just as brazen as the first round. But there may not be anyone in a position to call them out, and they may get away with it, end quote. Back to you, Carol. Thank you, Jeff. And um, now we'll go to the sports pages. This first article was written by Randy Peterson. Sama is Iowa State's RB of the future. 
I don't know the particulars about why Iowa State's Eli Sanders and Cartivius Norton didn't make the trip to Kansas State, but I know this. Big deal. The way true freshman Abu Sama played during Saturday's snowy 42-35 victory against Kansas State, I'm not sure how much they would have played anyway. First, carry. 71-yard touchdown run. Fifth, carry. 67-yard touchdown sprint. Sixth, carry. A plain old 31-yard run. For the game... 276 rushing yards, the fourth most in Iowa State history. Coach Matt Campbell said, in maybe his biggest understatement in the eight seasons as a coach, this guy's pretty good. He's gotten better every week. He's powerful. He's special. I thought he was exceptional. So what that Samuel lost a fumble on the snowy night? The ball was slick. Footing wasn't the greatest. Although this five foot eleven, two hundred pounder didn't seem to have much of a problem, what matters is that Sama showed that he's the future running back of this very positive trending program, and maybe Norton and Sanders saw it coming. The way he played in the snow Saturday night, he could be locked into the Cyclones RB one for a long while, and why not? with a resume that includes becoming the seventh player nationally with three touchdown runs of 70 yards or more against a ranked opponent. I'm proud of him, quarterback Rocco Betch said. He's been preparing well. As a young cat like that, he's going to get better every single week. Get better? I don't know that he can improve on what he did Saturday night. I mean, breaking a long one on first carry? That's Brees Hall stuff. And by that, I take you back to the 2021 game at Bill Snyder Family Stadium. First carry for the now New York Jets running back? A 75-yard touchdown. Sprint through the line. First Brees, now Abu. Campbell said of Sama, the guy is pretty special. I think he'll only get better. I just wonder if the two running backs who likely are considering the transfer portal saw the writing on the depth chart. Still, leaving teammates during a season, even if it's with just one regular season game remaining, doesn't cut it with me. What's more, what's one more game? Like Saturday night's snowball at Kansas State with the program that recruited you and with teammates you called brothers multiple times? The transfer portal opens on December 4th. If that's their reasoning, do they already have better offers elsewhere? Possibly, but I cannot imagine someone tossing a ton of name, image, and likeness dough at two backs who have combined for barely 800 yards. Sanders had 477 yards on 102 carries before Saturday night's game. Norton had 343 on 87 rushes. They don't appear to be big buck backs, but I could be wrong. To them, I say good luck in the future. Past Iowa State portal entries during the Camo regime haven't worked out so well. Maybe that'll change this time. 
After Saturday night, they're not in the future plans, at least as long as the former Southeast Polk High School star stays healthy. He's the running back room's future. And speaking of, this team that's bowl-bound with a 7-5 and five record has a future unlike past Cyclone programs. Six true freshmen have started this season, including Sama, on Saturday night. Six. That's where Campbell's focus is, not on guys halfway out the door. The coach said both of these guys are going through some things personally. I thought it was in their best interest to work through their personal situations. As of Saturday night, they were still on the team. Again, the portal is open for business December 4th. Everybody's got a different situation, Campbell said, as highly as he praised Sama, among others, after Saturday's game of significance. These were Campbell's best words of the evening. We really worry about the young men that are in this locker room right now, the young men that are on this football team. Saturday night, that started with Abu Salma. And now, here's the sports enthusiast, Jeff. Well, let's look at what's on TV today. Not much, or actually nothing involving Iowa-related teams, it appears. But we've got men's basketball at 6.30, uh, Oakland at Xavier. At 7 o'clock, <clears throat> Western Illinois plays Wisconsin, and New Hampshire plays Connecticut. And at 10 o'clock, there's a Mountain West uh, network game that features uh, Santa, UC Santa Barbara at Fresno State and Point Loma Nazarene at San Diego State. Uh, Pac-12 has Eastern Washington at Washington State and then at 11, Utah at St. Mary's. NBA basketball, the Lakers play Philadelphia at 7 and the Clippers play at uh, play Denver at 10:30, and the NFL football game tonight is the Bears against the Vikings in Minneapolis. Uh, Drake football finished eight and four season with a loss to North Dakota State. The Drake football team made its first ever FCS playoff appearance in the Fargo Dome on Saturday against perennial power North Dakota State. The Bulldogs' historic 2023 season ended with a 66-3 defeat at the hands of the Bison. Jacob Thompson chased down Bison quarterback Cam Miller on the first play from scrimmage and knocked the ball loose. Taylor Radoka picked up the or jumped on it as the Bulldogs benefited from an early takeaway. A Dorian Boyland rumble of 20 yards set up Drake at the North Dakota State 12-yard line. The Bulldogs eventually sent Shane Dunning out for a 30-yard field goal. Dunning connected with his 16th field goal of the season for the early 3-0 edge at the 12:49 mark of the first quarter. After that, it was all North Dakota State, as Drake finished the season 8-4. and four. The Bison amassed 547 total yards of offense, compared to 177 of total offense for, for Drake. Um... Let's see. Uh, let's see. Drake's Boyland rushed for 67 yards and nine carries. Caleb Boyland had a team high career 11 tackles, six solo for Drake. 
It is now time to go to oh ten fifty six. Let's go to Dear Abby. Thanks, Jeff. Dear Abby, I went to visit a man I was dating, and there was no visitor parking available. He told me to park in any space, even though there were signs stating non-residents would be towed. He said not to worry about it; that I'd be there only a few hours. Suffice it to say, I got towed. He did drive me to the tow yard to retrieve my car, but he didn't offer to pay for my tow charge or even half of it. I thought it would have been nice of him to at least offer, and that his not offering demonstrated lack of character. Yes, I know I chose to believe him at my own risk and that I'm responsible for my choices, but I trusted his information. In your opinion, did that demonstrate questionable character on his part? Signed, Toad in Texas. Abby says, Dear Toad, I'm not sure it demonstrated lack of character, but it certainly demonstrated lack of generosity. If he couldn't bring himself to take full responsibility, I agree he could have offered to pay half the fee. And I hope you put this guy in the rearview mirror. Dear Abby, I overheard my adult child speak to his significant other in a way I have heard only one other time. My child was not raised that way. My spouse and our children lived in what I thought was a traditional upbringing. I was shocked the first time and calmly expressed that speaking to another person with those words was disrespectful. I chalked it up to being young and not being mindful of other people's feelings. Once again, although I was not attempting to eavesdrop, I heard the same language. I expressed that I was disappointed, embarrassed, and ashamed of that language directed at another person. I suggested therapy to deal with this, but it scares me to think I don't know my own child, and they are capable of such behavior. Is it possible I raised a Jekyll and a Hyde? Or a young adult with no sense of pride or manners? Signed, Not My Child. Dear Not My Child, Is it possible that you raised an adult child who has trouble controlling their temper and forgets the vul that vulgarity and disrespect lessen the target's respect for the invective thrower? Therapy might help if your child is open to it, but having suggested it, the time has come for you to step out of this unfortunate scenario. The exception would be if you are afraid the verbal abuse could escalate. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Jeff Cassett, and my partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockard. Earlier, you heard from Mary Frances Evans and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings come from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs> ¶¶